Last week we were looking about the whole idea of the story of God from beginning to end, and we did the five. God, man, Jesus, cross, resurrection, and that's the summary of the whole of the Scripture. But to know the summary is not enough. You've got to know the person of Scripture and who that is. And so today we're going to drill down a little bit deeper, and we're going to realize that the Scriptures are really about God's character, about His works, about His promises, and obviously about His eternal plan. And sometimes when I look up and we're singing and we're talking about heaven, how many know that heaven's not the final destination? It's a new heaven and a new earth, wherein dwells righteousness, something that sometimes we can't even begin to imagine what it is. So I have a riddle for you. Here's the riddle. There's a house that one enters blind but comes out seeing. What is it? The answer is the house of God. When you come into God's house, as I did many years ago, there are so many things we don't understand, we don't see, we don't comprehend. But as we get to know his word, we get to know him. As we open our hearts in worship, he begins to heal us. He begins to work in us, and good things start to happen. And so I want you to think back for just a moment before you came to faith. And uh, we've got some six questions we want to ask you. And just in your own heart, how would you have answered these questions in the past? What have you placed then at the center of your story? You think of your career, you think of your, your track in life, where you were going, what consumed your heart and your mind? What was at the center of your story? How would you have described yourself to others at that time? Would you be able to identify what was wrong with you and what was wrong with the world? You know, in the story of reality course that we do, we talk about not only is man broken, but he has broken the world. So what's broken in us? Well, what would you have looked at as the solution? I remember all the roads that I went down, only to find out that at the end of the road, it was a dead end. What do I hope for in this world? And then last but not least, the one that's always a challenge. What do I believe happens after I die? So part of that storyline are the questions that we always hear about origins, meaning, morality, and destiny. And when those things are stirring in your heart and in your life, you're looking for answers to the meaning of life. And so does the God of the Bible factor into how you answer? Back then, maybe not, but as we come to the end of today, I think it's going to be a different story. I'm doing two things at one time in my life right now. I'm looking at the left side of my brain and I'm studying philosophy. And I'm going through all of the different stages of philosophy and history as man has tried to come to terms with the meaning and the purpose of life. And then on the other side of my brain, on the right-hand side, the creative side, I'm going through the history of Christianity. And as I'm doing both of these, I'm seeing, wow, they are two so separate tracks that our lives can be on. And yet, I think that one of the things that Scripture does 
is it brings the two together and brings answers to what you and I need. So Jesus challenges you and he challenges me. When we ask ourselves these questions, we need to pause. And when we pause, then we need to say, Lord, I want you to provide the answers that I need for those questions so that I can live the life that you're calling me to. And uh, we're going to look at two scriptures today, just two. We're going to look at John chapter 5 in a moment. And it's when Jesus goes up to Jerusalem and he decides to go to the pool of Bethesda. And it's a place that has five colonnades. Today, we would look at that as a modern hospital. But in those days, it was a place where the sick would go, the invalids would go. People would go and lie there because they believed that if they could get into the water in the pool when it stirred, the first one in would get healed. So how many know in life there's lots of superstition? There's lots of things for us to believe in, especially when we're struggling, when we're going through whatever we're going through. And so we'll look at that story in a moment, and you're going to see, in fact, if you can turn there, why don't you turn there in your Bible, and I'll turn there in mine, and I want to read part of it to you, because I found it, it's one of those portions of Scripture, you need the creative side of your brain as you're reading it to realize that this is Passover. This is a time when so many people are in Jerusalem, crowds of people, and all of these people that are sick. And Jesus doesn't do anything unless the Father directs him. And even though there's a lot of people that are sick, he's going to go to one person. Scripture says this, verse 1, John chapter 5. It was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these, by a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man, everybody say one man. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Doesn't say he was born an invalid. Something happened. And he ended up being an invalid, not able to walk. And so when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, do you think Jesus knows everything about your life? Everything about my life? He knows where we're at. And so when he comes in the midst, he comes with a purpose. Last week we said, Jesus stands in the middle of the lampstands in Revelation 2. The recognition is that he's in the midst of his church, and he is ministering all the time to his people in the midst of his church. The question is, are we reaching out, or are we just passive? And then we looked at where two or more are gathered. Just look around. Jesus said, there am I in the midst. So here he is now standing in the midst of the invalids at the pool of Bethesda in the city of Jerusalem, and he's on a mission. And that day he's on a mission for one person, but it's a purposeful mission. And so the scripture says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, 
Look, what does Jesus say? Do you want to be healed? Very personal question. Very challenging question. When you think about 38 years in that condition, could you imagine what that looked like? Could you imagine every time the water stirred, everybody get into the water but him? He says, there's no one to help me to get in. I can't walk. I can't get there fast enough. Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. How many know he didn't need the pool? He didn't need to be last in line. All he needed was to answer the one question Jesus asked him. I'm not asking you about the water. I'm not asking you about the pool. I'm not asking you about how long you've been sick. I know those things. What I'm asking you, sir, do you want to be healed? What a challenging question. And then Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. At once the man was healed, took up his bed, and walked. Now, flip over to the right side of your brain and imagine what that moment would have been for that man. 38 years in a messy situation in his life, was not able to work, was not able to be married, was not able to do all the things that regular people were able to do. And so he might not have looked or smelled very good lying there, waiting for the superstitious stirring of the water. And yet Jesus has been in Jerusalem many times. And at this particular moment, the question is reverberating around inside of him. And then Jesus, knowing the man wants to be healed, everybody who's sick wants to get better. Blind people want to see. Lame people want to walk. Cancer patients want to be free. That's part of the human condition. And so this man obeys what Jesus says, doesn't give him any more excuses, and simply takes up his bed because now there is strength in his limbs. They're not flapping around anymore. They're not weak anymore. They're strong now. And he gets up on his feet and he picks up his mat. Can you imagine what was going on in his mind at that moment? At once the man was healed, took up his bed, walked. And the scripture says this. Now, this day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. How blind can you be when a 38-year invalid has just been healed and all you're concerned about is he's picking up his mat on the Sabbath? He answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said this to you? Take up your bed and walk. Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had what? Withdrawn 
as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen. And the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered, my father's working until now, and I'm working. <laughs> when you read the scriptures, God starts putting them together. And you remember when the disciples were walking through the grain fields and they were doing things that normal people would do and they're taking some of the grain and they're doing the same as David did in the Old Testament. And they're working on the Sabbath according to the Jews. And Jesus says to them, the Sabbath was made for man so that man could finally be rested, refreshed, renewed, built up, strengthened. He didn't have to remind them of what life was like in Egypt in slavery, where for 400 years there was no Sabbath for them. It was work day in and day out, seven days a week. And then they come into the new covenant, and Jesus says to them, Oh, but there's a day that's made for you. It's made so that you could be well. You could be strengthened. And Jesus does it. On the Sabbath day, you think of all the complexities around what has just taken place, and it's throwing the religious leaders for a loop. They're the type that think they really see God clearly, but there's something missing, and Jesus uses this one moment in time to show them what they're missing. And we look at this as we go along but it's one of those portions of Scripture that as you enter into it really helps you to realize culture has a stronghold on all of us. If you walk out of here today and you say to someone that doesn't know Jesus, without him you're lost for eternity, they would mock and laugh. If you say that you believe that the God of the Bible is a God of love, and they'll always respond with the problem of evil. And if he's so strong and so loving and so powerful, why is the world the way it is? Good question. Bible answers those questions too. A man by the name of Larry Osborne says, if we fail to understand how spiritually impressive the Pharisees were, how, how central they were to the Jewish culture of that day, we'll remain blind to the danger of becoming like them. We'll assume that their tragic transformation from passionate defenders of God into mortal enemies of God could never happen to us. But it can, and it does. And so the core issue then and today, when the Pharisees searched the Scriptures for God, according to Jesus, he was right there in their midst, and they were blind to his presence. What did I say at the beginning? Where two or more are gathered, I am there in the midst of them. Can you see him? Do you know that he's here? Because when he heals your heart, you know he's present with you. 
365 days out of the year and the extra one on the leap year. In every circumstance, in every situation, no matter what, you go back to trusting the scriptures that say it's not about your feelings, Barry. It's about knowing that you know in your knower that I am with you and I will never forsake you and I'll never leave you. What does that do inside of you? The same thing that spinach did inside of Popeye. <laughs> that strengthens you. And so, I'm going to take you to Luke 24. Let's go there together. Luke chapter 24. And let's fast forward through the gospel story. Jesus has done all of these things. Because the Father's working and Jesus is working. And he's moving according to the promise and the plan towards a conclusion. And he's going to go to the cross. The Jews are looking for a redeemer who is going to overthrow Rome. And Jesus is going to have to have a conversation with two disciples after the cross after the burial, and on the day of the resurrection, when he is raised from the dead, and they're walking towards Emmaus, and they're talking about all the things that have happened, and Jesus will come alongside of them. And just like the man that was invalid, they're going to find out that when Jesus is in the midst, something happens in your heart. Your heart starts to burn. And when you get into God's word and you acknowledge his presence and that the author of scripture is with you and you say, Lord, speak to my heart, change my life. Let me know today you are the God of scripture. And all of a sudden, you're going to be on the same road to Emmaus. And so in Luke chapter 24, I want you to go there with me. Think about what Jesus has just gone through. He's challenged the Pharisees all the days of his ministry. And he's trying to get them to move from religion to relationship. He's trying to get them to move from practicing the Sabbath to living in the purpose of the Sabbath. He's asking them to believe him and understand him so that they can have genuine life in him. And so they are a powerful group in the culture of the day, affecting the people. And Jesus comes right in the midst and opens that up so that there's greater understanding in people. So now we're in Luke 24. And that very day, two of them, two disciples, they're leaving Jerusalem and they're going to Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem, or about 10 kilometers away. And they're talking with each other about all the things that have happened. I mean, no, that's a good conversation for believers, to talk about Jesus, talk about all the things that have gone on. And while they're talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. God has a way of holding your eyes back from seeing him <clears throat> until you're ready. 
He has a way of staying hidden so that you exercise faith and you reach out to him. He is a way of saying you don't live by your feelings. You live by truth. You live by faith. You live by what's been revealed. And what is about to be revealed is going to shatter their understanding of all that has just taken place in Jerusalem. Because you can imagine what they're going through. But we believed him. We spent three years with him. He was only trying to do good. And the religious leaders, again, here they come up on the scene. They had him crucified. What next? There are lots of things that Jesus told them that they can't remember yet because Holy Spirit's coming. And it's all part of the divine purpose and plan of God. And so their eyes were kept from seeing him, <clears throat> recognizing him. And then he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. One of them named Cleopas answered and said, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not, does not know the things that have happened in these days? And he said, what things? Don't you just love him? He has a way of asking us questions that gets right to the heart of what we need to respond with. The invalid, do you want to be healed? I'm sure he locked eyes with Jesus, was aware of who Jesus was, and finally thought to himself, I don't need the pool, I don't need anybody else, but I need him, and said, yes, I want to be healed. Do you want to be healed today? Whatever you're going through in your life and what I'm going through in my life, we have to answer the question. And if you say to Jesus in response to the what things, and you start giving him a litany of all the things that you've gone through in your life, he's going to stop you. And he's going to say, I didn't ask you that question. I asked you, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be well? And if you say, Jesus, I want to be well, he is going to minister life into you. And you're going to find transformation and change taking place in your life. Because he knows us. He knows what we've gone through. We don't have to rehearse it with him. We just have to look at his promise and say, Jesus, I believe you. And in the process of believing, things happen. So what things? And they said, well, concerning Jesus of Nazareth. I think he smiled at that point. A man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. Who did? The chief priests and the rulers, the religious leaders of the day. So don't underestimate their influence and their power in the community. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, 
Some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. And all the ladies said, oh, you missed a chance, ladies. Oh, you missed a moment. So we'll wait for the second service, and I'll try it there. <laughs> but him they did not see. And then he said to them, <laughs> I love how Jesus just cuts to the core. Oh, foolish ones. <laughs> Excuse me? <laughs> oh, foolish ones. And slow of heart to believe. Are we slow of heart to believe? With everything that the scriptures have revealed, are we slow of heart to believe all that God has accomplished? Was it not necessary that the Christ, the Messiah, should suffer these things and enter into his glory, and then beginning with Moses, so that's the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, beginning there. And then all the prophets, so every single prophet that proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, he begins this Bible study with them. How many would have loved to sit in that Bible study with those two disciples? And he starts to unpack it. And we begin to see now the understanding of why the early church focused on all these scriptures in the Old Testament. And later on, when God gets hold of Saul of Tarsus and he becomes the Apostle Paul and he is unpacking all of these truths that have been conveyed now from these two disciples to the rest of the community and the Holy Spirit's at work in the midst of them and opens up their eyes to the fullness of the Scriptures. And the, the Scripture goes on to say, So they drew near to the village. Well, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning what? Himself. So Jesus unpacks it. And they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. <clears throat> There's a way in our walk with Jesus that we need to say to him, <clears throat> stay with me. Meaning that as he's walking, he is saying to them, I just unpacked all this to you. Now I'm going to go further. And they're like, no, 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 no. Don't do that. Don't leave us now. Stay with us. Can you say that now in your heart? Jesus, stay with me. Because you know the truth that he will. But there's something about, Lord, I need your presence even closer today than I've ever done before. Stay with me. Because there's an anticipation in their hearts of more to come. Are you anticipating more to come? I know I am. And they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So Jesus went in to stay with them, and when he was at the table with them, he took bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them, and their eyes were opened. Remember at the beginning, their eyes were closed. They couldn't recognize him. Now the scriptures have been imparted to them. Now they have understanding of why he came, what he was doing. Now they knew that he was the suffering servant that God had promised long ago. Now they remembered what took place at the Last Supper. And now their eyes are opened. They recognize him, and he vanishes from their sight. No wonder those two left that house that night to go back to Jerusalem because they were so filled with awe. They were so encouraged in their heart. They were so built up. They were so strengthened that they were able to say, Jesus is alive. He has been raised from the dead, never to die again. What a hope. What a transformation. What an incredible moment for them. And so let me throw a few things out to you. I think as they're walking along and Jesus is talking to them, he's going to answer the why Jesus question. And if you can answer the why Jesus question, then you will never get deceived. You will never be in a place where you're concerned about your walk with him. You'll always know his awareness and his presence, and you'll be able to see there's no other gospel. There's no other religion because it's not about religion. It's not about man trying to reach God. It's God reaching out to man in the person of his son. And when that starts to happen inside of you, you think Jesus is walking along and they're starting to unpack all the things that they understand about what's just taken place. And he takes them back to Genesis 2 and he's unpacking the Torah now and he says to them, well, God said there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil and that Adam and Eve were not to partake of that because in the day that they did, they would die. And so he unpacks that to them. And the Bible has lots of mystery, and I'm glad it does because as you're journeying with him, you can say to him honestly, today, Lord, my eyes are not recognizing you the way I should, and I know that, and there's always more in this journey, and Lord, I just give you permission. You open my eyes whenever they need to be opened, because my heart is open. My heart is yearning for you, and so he starts to bring this understanding, and they go, wow, that's right. There was a penalty that was over the hearts of men and women. And that was a penalty of death, and there was no way for that penalty removed by man because man was already spiritually bankrupt. And so God had to do for man what man could not do for himself. And that's why Jesus came as God manifest in the flesh, lived his life to reveal, if you've seen me, Jesus said, you've seen my Father and demonstrates the love of God and the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God and the power of God and the reality of an indestructible life. And so he shares that with them. Jesus would say to them, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, the wrath of God remains upon them. 
So this truth is critical for us to understand because if we can't answer the why Jesus question, then we don't really understand the heart of the gospel. In John chapter 5, there's one very important scripture I want to end with. It's the realization that everything the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders of Jesus' day, everything they're looking for is right before their eyes. But without relationship, they can't see it. And that's the same for us. With relationship, we can see. With relationship, we can hear. With relationship, we can led, be led by the Spirit of God into the truth. And so, Jesus unpacks the law and shows them Adam and Eve's situation and why he's the answer. He shows them Noah's ark, and there's one entrance to the ark, and there's only one ark, and there's judgment coming. He talks to them about the order of Melchizedek. No father, no mother, very unique high priest. He talks about the Passover and what happened when they came out of slavery and they had to slay a lamb that was spotless. And later on, the Apostle Paul would say, Jesus is our Passover lamb. And then he would talk about the veil in the temple. He would talk about the mercy seat. And they're just going ballistic as all this is happening. In the history books, he talks about the promised land and what is to come. In the wisdom books, Psalm 19 is a good one to get into that talks about why we trust Scripture. The Gospels show us the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus and the burial of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension of Jesus and the realization that he is coming again. Because if everything from the moment of the beginning of the Bible to when Jesus rose from the dead and said, as the, he's ascending into heaven, the angel said, this same Jesus that you see go into heaven, everything that you know in the past that is absolutely true, this same Jesus is going to come back again. Hallelujah. And then the epistles. Tell us all the wonderful things of how to build the church, how to course correct our thinking, and then the book of Revelation, the confirmation. So, we conclude with this. Jesus shares with them everything concerning himself in the old, we would call the Hebrew Scriptures. So, here are the six questions we asked at the beginning. Now that you know this and Jesus is part of your life, is Jesus the center of your story now? Is Jesus included in how you describe yourself to others? Is the enemy of Jesus, the sickness of your soul, the root cause for what is wrong with you and what is wrong with the world? Because there is an enemy. Had there been no enemy, there'd be no need for the cross. The enemy deceived and destroyed the purposes of God, but he gave us free will. 
So this is all being unpacked and unfolding in our day so that we can understand the mystery of what God is doing. Is Jesus your anchored hope in this world? Is Jesus in, in faith, is Jesus your future trust for what happens when you die? The Pharisees are looking intently at the Scriptures, but they're not seeing what they need to see. The man that was invalid for 38 years got his eyes on Jesus, and he gets healed. The disciples on the road to Emmaus tuned their ears to this man that's talking, got their eyes on Jesus when he breaks bread, and they know it's him. All that is in them, and God brings his word to life so that you and I can trust Scripture. And so let me finish with this. In the Gospels, when we ask ourselves the question, if the Gospels are accurate, then Jesus is who he said he was. He is the Son of God, and God's word can be trusted. Scripture's true. And Jesus was raised from the dead. Everybody say Jesus. We're not just talking about stuff now. We're talking about the person of. If Jesus was raised from the dead, then Scripture's true. God's words can be trusted. He is the Son of God. He is who he said he was. And the Gospels are absolutely accurate. So what was that Scripture in John's Gospel that the Pharisees struggled over when Jesus did what he did. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in the Scriptures you have eternal life. But the Scriptures are describing me, and I'm right here in your midst, and you won't come to me. We said it last week. The written Word always reveals the living Word. But you can't stop there. Because the living word always brings us back to the written word so that you and I can have confidence in our walk every single day that the God that we serve is a God that loves this world. He gave his own and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish. There's that. Unless the death penalty is lifted off your life, you perish. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but to save the world through him. If you go online and watch Pastor Jason's message from today, at the very end of his service, he's going to take a level and he's going to put it up. Everybody knows what a level is. A level is something that you place on what you're building to make sure that it's accurate, that it's straight the way it should be. But here's what people sometimes do with the Bible. They bend it to suit themselves. You can't change this to suit yourself. You read this to be changed to be what God has called you to be. Let's pray. Put your hands over your heart. Father, as we take this moment, we want to say thank you that 
not one of us here today want to stay the way we are. And so when you asked the invalid the question, do you want to be healed? His heart cried out a loud and a resounding yes. I don't want to stay in this circumstance that I find myself in. I need change. And Jesus ministered the change the man needed. That one man, not all that were there, just that one man, because Jesus is giving us an example that he knows everything we're going through. And he knows exactly what to do in our hearts and lives. But we have to answer the question, yes, Lord, I want to be healed. And the same thing for the disciples on the road to Emmaus. As soon as you broke the bread, <clears throat> their eyes were opened, and they knew in their knower that you were the Christ, the Son of the living God. And that scripture now took on a whole new meaning for them because in your word was life. And that life ministered to them so that they would serve you now for the rest of their lives because they knew they were loved and they knew that death was not the end. You put the exclamation mark in their story. And we want to say thank you today, Jesus. You're speaking to our hearts about our relationship with you. So if you don't have a relationship with Jesus today, I just want you to say, yes, Lord, I need to be healed in spirit, soul, and body. Yes, Lord, your word, I want it to come alive in my heart. And I want to walk with you in faithfulness all the days of my life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.